Uh, brethren, I want to start uh, by bringing your attention to a very tragic incident that happened earlier this year. It happened on Sunday, March 26th, when a 25-year-old man vanished after he set off for work harvesting palm oil in a remote village on the island of West Sulawesi, or Sulawesi, Indonesia. Just disappeared. When he didn't return home, concerned friends and relatives began to look for him. The man's name is, or was, Akbar Salubiro. When they found him, they found him inside a python. A 30-foot python had swallowed him whole. They had suspected that pythons could swallow adult males, but they could never prove it. This time in this village, somebody had a, a cell phone camera, and they actually recorded one of the neighbors taking an 18-foot knife and slitting open the python. And, and the man was there fully clothed as they took him out. Mr. Rachmansea is an agricultural lecturer from the university there in Makassar, and he said the killer snake might have had its habitat disturbed by the growing human activities in the area, such as palm oil plantations. So as those uh, plantations expand, they're forcing these pythons now to interact or come closer into human civilization. The very tragic brethren, it's also a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the danger that we face. Snakes are not always just physical snakes. There are other snakes in the grass that we have to be aware of. Uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 15, as we begin here. Second Samuel 15, we're cutting into the middle of the narrative, but this is uh, to do with Absalom, uh, David's son. And here in 2 Samuel 15 and verse 2, Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, so they're going to King David for judgment, Absalom would intercept them. Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city are you? And he would say, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. So he'd say where he's from. And Absalom said unto him, See, your matters are good and right, but there's no man deputed of the king to hear you. So I'm on your side. What, your, your complaint or your concern, I agree with you. But unfortunately, the king doesn't have a deputy to hear you. You just have to go to the king. We're not sure whether or not the king will agree with you. But if I was the king's deputy, I certainly see your case. Verse 4, Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which has any suit or cause might come to me, and I would do him justice. So clearly, if you had a, a concern, if you were hard done by, and you wanted to go to see the king about this concern, and you weren't sure which way it was going to go, uh, but this man sees your case. He's a reasonable man. He's an intelligent man. He gets you. He understands you. He wants to plead your cause. Oh, if he could only be judge. 
Well, certainly you would support him, because that's the kind of judge you would like. And it was so that when any man came near to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. I mean, whenever anybody kisses you, they must be your friend, right? They must mean you well. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So all Israel that came, he was just deliberate and meticulous and very thorough. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after 40 years. So I just want you to know how long he was at this, brethren. Sometimes people have agendas. These people are not simple. You know, just because they didn't get their way today or tomorrow, it doesn't mean they've given up. They will work an agenda over decades. And sometimes we don't have a long memory. And we can't look back over decades. So we really don't know what the agenda is. We just look at today and yesterday and figure, well, must be what I see, take it at face value. But sometimes to understand what's really going, back, going on, we have to go way back. So he was at this for 40 years. That Absalom said to the king, I beg you, let me go and pay my vow. So now that he sort of realizes he's got the upper hand, now he's ready to act. Let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I abode in Geshur, in Syria, saying, If the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. Sure. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel. And he realizes he's won their hearts and minds now. So he sent spies throughout all the land of Israel, the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And the idea now we can overthrow the king. But verse 11 is what I want to call your attention to. And what I would like us to focus on. In verse 11, Absalom went with 200 men. So he amassed a small army of loyal followers. 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called. And notice this phrase. And they went in their simplicity. And they knew not anything. And brethren, this is the caution for us. That sometimes we can get caught up in something. That actually there's a hidden agenda. And we don't see it. We think it's a good cause. They hear they're going in their integrity. They, they, they don't have the knowledge. So they can do this with a clear conscience. And they're going to fully support Absalom. Not knowing the evil that is in his heart. Is it possible, brethren, that this could happen to us? We know that the devil seeks to deceive the whole world. Could he also deceive us? What I want to do for the sermon today is a little bit unusual. And so I need permission. And I need permission from our white brethren. If I could have permission to speak to our black brethren. Is that okay? You can listen in. You don't, you don't have to leave. You can listen in. And I guess what I would ask of our white brethren is if you can take the principles from what I want to talk about today and to apply it to your life, your issues. We all have issues. Today I'm going to talk about some black issues. 
Okay? But, but our white brethren have issues as well. And I think some of the principles here apply to you equally. I just want to talk about a very specific one. And I want to talk about it because, like Absalom, it is capturing the hearts of the majority of black people, particularly our children. And as we see here, the lovely children, and they know they're learning the truth of God, we can't afford for the devil to infiltrate and kidnap them. So I want to talk about this issue because it is infiltrating the church. And as it does, you know, I came across a post, not in Canada, it was uh, overseas, and it was quite a long post. And as I read it, I thought to myself, if I was a white brother or sister, and I read this from a black brother or sister, how would I respond? What would I think? And I really do believe, brethren, I would be offended. I would be surprised. And I would feel betrayed. Can we afford for the devil to divide us? We can't. And I think you probably figured out that I'm speaking about a movement called Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. It has infiltrated the church. And so I want to talk about it today. I guess I want to start a conversation. I can't cover everything today, but let's start to talk about this. Is this healthy? Yeah, I don't think so. Is this something that we can afford for our kids to enroll in and get engaged in? I don't think so. So, I just want to explore this movement, Black Lives Matter, and then look at it from a biblical perspective. And then, biblically, what steps should we be taking? How should we conduct ourselves, given that this movement is gaining momentum? Black Lives Matter is an organization that was founded by three women. Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opal Tometi. It was founded in 2012 when a young man, Trayvon Martin, was killed by George Zimmerman, and later George Zimmerman was acquitted. Later that, uh, or, or a couple of years later, in Ferguson, Michael Brown was shot by police. And apparently the narrative was that he had, his, he had his hands up saying don't shoot, but he was shot down anyway. Uh, that narrative was later proven to be false. And so the whole movement gained momentum off of the Ferguson riots, which were actually, the narrative was false. Statistically, we have a problem. In 2015, 258 black men, or blacks, were killed by police. 258 killed by police. I think on a human level, our hearts go out to these victims. Nobody should be gunned down if they are innocent. Some people, unfortunately, that's the law. We have to kill criminals if they are deadly. But let's assume that in this 258, there are some people that were killed unjustly. And we need to respond to that. But if Black Lives Matter, the movement, was sincere, they would be more concerned 
about the fact that the very same year, 6,000 blacks were killed by blacks. Black people killing black people. 6,000, not 258. And of those 258, many were criminals, armed criminals. If I go to the States, I'm more concerned about what a black man could do to me than what the police could do to me, statistically. And if Black Lives Matter cared, they would care about black-on-black -black violence. Somehow, 6,000 lives perish, and the Black Lives Matter movement is silent. One police officer kills one black man, and all hell breaks loose. The media goes wild, and we're pushed, this narrative is pushed on us, so that suddenly we believe the whole police force are, are, are like slave masters and just want to destroy black lives. Is that a true narrative? You say yes? Let's talk about it. And bring, and bring your statistics. Bring your statistics. We, we need to be careful. You know, when I was a teenager, and this is uh, important to me, because I'm telling you, brethren, I would have been swept up by this movement. I would have been one of those true believers behind this movement. Back in my day, there was a lawyer. I don't know if you remember Dudley Laws? Yeah. Dudley Laws, yeah. I, I think he was a, a good man. But I remember somebody was shot somewhere, and Dudley Laws organized this march. I had no idea who was shot. I had no idea why. I just knew that a black man was shot. I was there marching. And I think this is the danger of our young people, that we don't look into things, we don't examine things. What is the truth behind the matter? And this Black Lives Matter movement, brethren, is a big concern. And I'm hoping, just to start a conversation, just to try to look at this thing biblically. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And what I want to say to you, brethren, and I hope I can prove it to you, but if not, at least start the conversation, that Black Lives Matter is of the devil. This movement is of the devil. And it wants to destroy us. And these people who founded it are not our friends. They're not our friends. Back in the 70s, I think it was the 70s, maybe the 80s, for some of you who, who remember, the Temptations had a, a big hit. Do you remember that? It was called Smiling Faces. And it said, smiling, I can't sing, but I'll do this anyway. <laughs> smiling Faces sometimes pretend to be your friend. Smiling faces show no traces of the evil that lurks within. Smiling faces, smiling faces sometimes they don't tell the truth. Smiling faces tell lies, and I've got proof. Remember the smile, see I've converted from singing to talking. <laughs> Remember a smile is just a frown turned upside down. My friend, let me tell you, smiling faces, sometimes they don't tell the truth. Beware of the handshake that hides the snake. I'm telling you, beware. Beware of the pat on the back. It just might hold you back. 
just because these people are black, just because they smile at us because we're black, just because they pat us on the back, hey brother, bro, doesn't mean they're our friend. And I'm concerned that we would fall into this trap where we are willing to offend our white brothers and sisters because, hey, it's a black thing. But let's examine this. The founders are avowed lesbians. Their principles on their website, they say this, we are committed to fostering a queer affirming network. That's what Black Lives Matter is about. We are committed to fostering a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so. So whenever you see a Black Lives Matter movement, a gathering, when we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. We must release ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. That is, when you think a, that a, a man and a woman coming together is normal, we, we have this, this has gripped society and we must break this grip. That's the purpose of Black Lives Matter. We are committed to doing the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. I didn't know what cisgender was. I had to look it up. Cisgender. You are cisgender if you believe that your gender is the gender that was assigned to you at birth. You're cisgender. As opposed to transgender. Transgender is, I was assigned male at birth, but I want to be female. I'm transgender. The fact that you are satisfied with the gender you were assigned at birth, you are cisgender. So they are committed to doing the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. This is what Black Lives Matter is all about. Not only are they avowed lesbians, they are trained Marxists. And if you do any study, that should send shivers down your spine. Marxism is deadly. Marxism is about totalitarian control. Marxism is about destroying Christianity in order to introduce utopia, which is a world without Christ. That's what Black Lives Matter is. Matthew 12. Matthew 12. Matthew 12 and verse 46. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. <clears throat> then one said unto him, Behold, your mother and your brethren stand without, desiring to speak with you. But he answered and said unto them that told him, who is my mother and who are my brethren? This is Christ our Lord. He came to earth in the form of a man. And they said, hey, your mother and your brother are waiting for you. Your mother and your brothers are waiting to talk to you. He asked the question to his disciples, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, behold, my mother and my brethren. 
For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Brethren, I follow Christ. I hope we all follow Christ. And so, show me the Black Lives Matter people and the thugs they hold up as heroes and tell me that that's my brother and my sister, and I say no. I put my hand out to my white, my Asian, Chinese, all brethren, in Christ. And I say, behold, my brothers and my sisters. Amen. 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 Thank you. You know, I appreciate that. Because I I had packaged my own amens just in case. (laughs) So I was ready to support myself. (laughs) And encourage myself. I appreciate that. You know, when I was young, it was all about the system and the man. And I was marginalized. I became homeless. And I was just on the margin. Not in society at all. And I was with all other people who were on the margin. And it was all about the system. And two years of doing that, I mean, I wasn't homeless for two years, but two years of just being on the margin. And I looked at my friends. They were all black. They were all in their 50s. And they were all on welfare. And they were all criticizing the government. And my mother, and we were on welfare at a time, and they came to my mother and said, she wanted to work, and they said to her, you can't work, it doesn't make sense for you to work. You'll actually be behind when you look at your lunch money, your travel, clothes, you'll lose money. And my mother just said, I have to work. And so we took a dip economically so that she could get out of welfare. And she worked, and she worked, and she worked. And almost like every year we were moving to nicer places. From cockroach-infested home to a home that was beautiful. Every year, step by step. And that was ingrained in me. So two years hanging out with these losers, and I just said, like, what am I doing? And I figured out, if it's a system, it's predictable. If it's a system, you can work it. You can navigate it. And I realized this system works on education. That if you don't have an education, if you don't have value, you can't get anywhere. And so I said, you know what, I'm going back to school. And I went back to school and then I navigated the system. So this system, brethren, is the greatest system for black people ever. This system has created more billionaires and millionaires for blacks than any system ever in the history of mankind. And I challenge anybody to show me different. Yet, the system, sure, there's racism. But this system, you can't drive looking through the rearview mirror. If, you, if you're going to look through the rearview mirror, you're going to crash. And a lot of people are looking through the rearview mirror saying, Oh, I see slavery. I see slavery. Slavery is abolished. Because there was a true Black Lives Matter movement started by William Wilberforce, who became a Christian. And when he read the Bible, he said, this is wrong. A white man fought to destroy slavery. America engaged in civil war to destroy slavery. White people put their li- lost their lives to destroy slavery. And here's the thing. If you want to look in the rearview mirror, really look into it. And look all the way back to how did the slaves come to Africa. Because there's not a single, to America, because there's not a single slave 
that left the shores of Africa and came to the West that wasn't captured by Muslims. White people didn't go into the middle of Africa to hunt slaves. They came to the coast. It was the Muslims when they burst out of Arabia. It was the Boko Haram of the time. The Boko Haram of the time. The same way you saw those Christian girls kidnapped. They were the ones that were kidnapping blacks and then selling them to the West. And I'll tell you this. If we switch from the rearview mirror to the windshield, slavery is ahead. And what's coming is far worse than anything behind. And this system that is in place now, as unjust as it is, as corrupt as it is, it's the best mankind has ever seen. And when they destroy it, what's coming is totalitarian oppression and a slavery the likes of which we've never seen. This system is actually built upon Christian principles. And it defends, or, or if you believe in the Bible, you can be free to believe in the Bible. What's coming will not allow you to read the Bible. The Bible will be hate speech. Believing Christ is divine will be hate speech. And what the Marxists want to do is root Christianity out of society. And they're using movements like Black Lives Matter to do that. Who funds Black Lives Matter? How, in just a few years, did this thing spread globally all over the planet? George Soros. We need, who is this guy? What's his agenda? Black Lives Matter is very dangerous, brethren. It's very dangerous. Matthew 24 and verse 12 says, because lawlessness shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. If our loyalty is to our race, in verse 10 he says, many shall be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. If we are rewired so that our loyalty is to our race and we see a white brother or a yellow brother or sister but our first loyalty is to our race. The prophecy is against us. The, the prophecy says Christians are going to turn on one another. We need to be this close-knit group that no matter what they come at us with, we would never betray one another. Amen. There's a condition called colony collapse disorder that they're seeing with honeybees, where a whole colony, millions of bees, the whole colony will just collapse suddenly. And it's a mystery. They believe that parasites are invading these colonies, and then the colonies just collapse. And the economic impact is devastating. We, we are, you know, when we talk about white privilege, and we must bring down the white patriarchy, we are setting ourselves up for colony collapse disorder. And when this civilization collapses, brethren, what replaces it is terrible. We only have to look into the prophecies to see what's coming. And a a civilization that regards Christian principles is good for Christians. A civilization that denigrates Christ is not good for us. Colossians 3. We sang that we're standing on the promises of Christ alone. All other ground is sinking sand. 
And, and to think that we have brethren who are going to take a stand on the ground of Black Lives Matter, that's sinking sand, brethren. That's sinking sand. These people, they are full of hate, homicidal hate. And that, you know, that hate that's targeted to white, I, I saw a presentation at Harvard University where the presenter is saying, all white people must commit suicide. At Harvard University. With passion. That hatred that's targeted towards white people, it's really targeted toward Christ. And once they bring this civilization down, if you want to name the name of Christ, that hatred is coming for you and for me. So I don't buy it. You love me, but you hate somebody with white skin? That's not true love. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. Amen. Colossians 3, brethren. Colossians 3, verse 1. If you and I then be risen with Christ, that's our claim, that we are now with Christ. If that's the case, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on earth. And, and what these Marxists are doing, brethren, and they've, they've, this, they've, they've done this from the beginning, and I've really challenged myself to, why is Marxism so attractive? It is the global flavor of the month. All over the world, people have bought into Marxism. And I, I, the only conclusion I can come to is, it allows them to be God. It allows them to have totalitarian control over their subjects without appealing to a God. That, like Stalin, they can be the God. And they promise utopia. Show me anywhere in history where Marxism has brought nothing but homicide and murder and rape and oppression. But they promise utopia. What, what does Black Lives Matter promise? What's the end game? Or is it just to destroy, just to bring down white privilege? And then what? what what's the end game? What, what's your promise? What's the outcome? Nothing. They're bankrupt. What do we have? Christ says here, set your affection on things above. So they come to us promising us utopia. I can't see it without Christ. I can't see it with anybody who has a human heart. I can't say to you, you know, if you would only make me the leader, then we would have utopia. The problem with evil, brethren, is it's not in society. It's in the human heart. And whoever is in charge, we are then subject to their evil. This Absalom character, if he could have replaced King David, how do you think he would have treated Israel? The same Absalom that was kissing everybody to get into position. Once he's in position, is he still kissy, kissy, kissy? Or would he take all their wives and daughters and destroy them? and oppress them and enslave them. Let's set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead. We're dead. Don't promise me things in this life. I'm dead to this world. My affection is on the kingdom. So whatever you want to promise me, I'm not, listen, I'm not interested. It's temporary. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. So. 
Our life is not here. This is temporary. Our life is with Christ. And He's hiding it. And He's going to reveal it. When Christ, who is our life, who is our life, Black Lives Matter is not our life, Christ, who is our life, when He shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. And with every other race in Christ. All those who are true brothers and sisters, we're all going to appear together in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. So don't come to me with any appeals. I've mortified my members. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Which, by the way, all these things, these folks in the Black Lives Matter movement, they're involved in all this stuff. This is their joy. For which things sake, the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked some time when you lived in them. But now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice. When you see them rioting in the streets, setting things on fire, wanting to kill people because they're angry about the past, that does not come from Christ. What comes from Christ is forgiveness, understanding, dialogue. They don't want dialogue. They don't want debate. They shut down all debate. They just want to kill and destroy. And they, they want to justify. You know, anytime, anytime, somebody plays the victim card, woe is me, and then uses that victim position to say, I have a right to retaliate, watch out. That is the human condition at its worst. And watch it, you'll see what unfolds from it. But now you also put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This is it, brethren. We don't have black and white. We don't have Jew or Greek. We have Christ. And I, you know, I'm glad that there's support for this message. I know at least one brother has walked out. And this is what the left, the Marxists, do. They don't engage in dialogue. We can disagree. I can come to you and say, you know, I've been studying my Bible and, and studying world situations. This is what I see. Brother, sister, what do you see? And we can engage in dialogue. And iron sharpens iron. God says, come, let us reason together. But they don't want to reason. They just want to react. We need to control ourselves that we don't just react. We engage in conversation, trying to seek what is true. I could be completely wrong. And if you think so, show me. And we talk. But from what I see here, there is neither Greek nor Jew. And I'm going to extend that to say there is neither black nor white. Put on, therefore, as the elect, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy. So when they're rioting with their anger and their wrath, we put on bowels of mercies, kindness, 
humility of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. The thing about wrath and malice, brethren, is it's a disease of the heart. And you can't control it. Once it's in you, it's in you. And you might think, you know, when I'm in services, I'll be good with my brothers and sisters, but out there, I'm going to stand for things, I'm going to be angry. But if that's in your heart, when the time, that's who you are. Who we are is who we are. And so we have to be consistent and put this on everywhere. Put this on everywhere. Luke 17. And this is really where I want to now focus our attention. Again, when I read this post on social media, and I just thought to myself, if I was white and reading this, what would I think? It was offensive to me. Justifying Black Lives Matter. Luke 17 and verse 1. And you know, I want us to talk about this, brethren, because this thing is something that can just be bubbling under the surface. And when the time comes, when something happens out there, instead of us pulling together, we split apart. So better for us to talk it through now, so that when something happens, we all know where we are. And we can all trust each other. I can look at my sisters, I can look at my brothers, and I know they've got my back. And they know that I've got theirs. Luke 17, and verse 1, Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. So, this is just the nature of man. We're going to offend one another. And people are going to offend us. It's impossible otherwise. But woe unto him through whom they come. Christ is pronouncing a curse on anybody who offends one of his little ones. This should terrify us. That Christ is pronouncing a curse upon us if we should offend someone for whom he died. It were better for him that a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Beware. Take heed to yourselves. So this is what we're doing today. We're taking heed to ourselves. Lest we are deceived and tricked, and we end up pointing our loyalty in the wrong direction and then offending one of Christ's little ones. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. So he's giving us then a model to make sure that we work offenses out of the body. Look now at 1 Corinthians 8. A different issue altogether, but an issue we can learn some principles from. In 1 Corinthians 8, this is the situation where the Corinthian church wrote to the Apostle Paul because they were having various issues. And one of the issues was meat sacrificed to idols. So uh, the pagans would sacrifice this meat to their idols, and then they would sell the meat in the market. And so there was a question, can we buy... Some, some brethren were buying this meat and eating it, and other brethren were not touching it, saying it's been sacrificed to idols. And so they wanted clarification from the Apostle. 
So, in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, Paul says this, We know that an idol is nothing. So we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is none other God but one. So we're not, we're not fooled. These people who are sacrificing the meat, they really believe the idol is something. And so they go through this ceremony and they believe in the idol. We know there's only one God. So the idol is nothing to us. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. So he's saying here that within the Christian community, not everybody understands this. So, so we understand that the idols are nothing, but for some in the Christian community, they really believe the idols have some kind of magical power. Okay? For some, with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So maybe they're in a social situation where they think, okay, well, I'll eat this. But then they really feel defiled afterwards. They're sorry they did this. They regret it. But he says, But meat commends us not to God, for neither, if we eat, are we the better, neither, if we eat not, are we the worse. So, so Paul is saying it's irrelevant. Okay. But take heed. Same thing that Christ said. Take heed to yourselves. But take heed, lest by any means this freedom of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. So, so not everybody is at the same level, but we are all brethren. And even though I have the freedom to eat or not, the fact that there are some that are weak, if I take my freedom and eat, I could shipwreck this brother or sister. And he's saying to me, be careful. For if any man see you which has knowledge, so I have knowledge, and he sees I have the knowledge, but he sees me, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols. So, hey, Adrian's a pastor. I saw him eating the meat sacrificed to idols. He doesn't realize that I understand the idol is nothing. He thinks the idol is something. And he thinks, well, if Adrian did it, I can do it. And well, I've already sinned. So that other sin that I was thinking about doing, might as well do that too. Right? If I'm in the gutter, I'm in the gutter. Okay? So I end up shipwrecking my weak brother or sister. And through, this is now his warning to me, verse 11, and through your knowledge, because I have knowledge, through my knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. So this is the, this is the biblical perspective that we have, that these are brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. I would not do anything that would jeopardize their walk with Christ. That's the perspective God wants us to have. So he says here in verse 12, But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wow! I can sin against Christ. So I don't care. I write on my Facebook, I love Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter and white people should be killed and I support that. And a white brother or sister reads this and thinks, is this what the church is? I don't want that. I don't want anything to do with that. For whom Christ died. 
And the Bible tells me, when I do that, I sin against Christ. Therefore, listen to Paul's response. So I don't care, I have knowledge, I can eat the meat. But look at Paul. Therefore, verse 13, if meat make my brother to offend, I'll be a vegetarian for the rest of my life. That's Paul's response. You know what? It just it, My desires, my personal preferences, don't matter compared to the fact that I could jeopardize a brother or sister's walk. He says here, If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. And I think, brethren, this is the kind of heart that we should have. That we would never engage in anything that could offend a brother or a sister and jeopardize their walk. Because we value the blood of Christ. He, he came from heaven and he walked on the earth and they destroyed him. They destroyed him, brethren. And he did that willingly. He did that willingly. And are we going to just take that for granted? Oh, I'm in the body now? He came for me. I'm the only one who matters. And yet there's a brother for whom he died and suffered and we don't care. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Ephesians, Paul gives us some practical advice. In Ephesians 5 he says, For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. So, as long as the founders of Black Lives Matter remain avowed lesbians, supporting transgenderism, destroying Christianity, uh, committed to the Marxist ideology, they're not in the kingdom of God. They can repent, and we certainly hope they will, but we can't follow them. They're not heading to the kingdom. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not you therefore partakers with them. We can't partake with them. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So rather than go on Facebook and say how much I love Black Lives Matter, I'm going to go on Facebook and reprove Black Lives Matter and uphold Christ. For it is a shame to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. When Satan deceived our mother Eve, He didn't come to her and say, I want what you have. You're in my way. He came to her and said, I've got something for you. This is about you. I would really like to help you now. And she fell for it. 
when Absalom set about to oppress Israel, he didn't come to them and say, I want to oppress you guys. I, I want you guys to worship me. He came to them and said, oh, I, I, I stand for your cause. It's all about you. I support you. Oh, that only there was a judge in Israel that could back you up. So when Black Lives Matter comes to me and says, Adrian, you're black and we support you, I say, get lost. Get behind me, Satan. Amen. Thank you. Genesis 10, brethren. Genesis 10. Genesis 10, Moses introduces us to Nimrod in verse 8. And he spends quite a bit of time on this man and shows us how expansionist he was. And this agenda that Nimrod set in motion here in Genesis 10, it's been running ever since. This, this, this is the agenda that was building the tower and building the, this empire. And then God, when God saw it, he said... Now, any imagination they have, they will do. And that caused him concern. Because the imagination of man has no floor. It has no floor. Whatever evil can imagine, whatever evil man can imagine, there is worse coming. Because when Satan gets a hold of man's imagination, it has no depth. And so what God saw was how the evil that would come upon the world... And, and the, the complete destruction of the righteous. And he couldn't have that. He couldn't have that. He has a plan. And so he interrupted them so that his plan could unfold. But he tells us that this same agenda is coming back. Babylon isn't fully destroyed until Christ returns. And so there's a time when all mankind will unite again. And they will exercise this agenda. But this agenda went into every civilization. When, they, when he divided the language, they took this totalitarian agenda and founded every civilization with it. And they've all been seeking this, total control over human beings. And Satan has been working with them. But now the world is global again. And so one of these ideologies will be successful. It's either going to be, from what I can see, it's either going to be Marxism or it's going to be Islam. These are the two competing ideologies that have a global agenda and are really gaining traction today. But here in verse 9, it says that he was a mighty hunter. He was a hunter. He was hunting the souls of men. And that's what these totalitarian governments do. They hunt the souls of men, particularly righteous men. And they're not our friends. This Nimrod ideology is embedded in Black Lives Matter. It's funded by George Soros, who has this ideology. But you know, turn with me to Luke 19. Luke 19. It's bad enough that they're hunting our souls. It's bad enough that they want to destroy 
basically American civilization, because that really is the vanguard of Christianity today in the world. If they can bring it down, then they can just have a free run. It's bad enough they want to do these things. It's worse when we help them. That is really sad. That is really sad. When we help them destroy uh, the, the, the Christian foundation of Western civilization. In Luke 19, verse 43, Christ is speaking specifically to the Jews, but it really has global implications. Luke 19, verse 43, For the day shall come upon you, that your enemies shall cast a trench about you. This is the Nimrod ideology now coming to the full. Your enemies shall cast a trench about you, and surround you, and keep you in on every side. This is the hatred that they have for God's people, that Nimrod had for God's people. And shall lay you even with the ground. So they're going to just level us. But look at this. Not just us, and your children with you. These people are merciless. And that hatred that you see in Black Lives Matter, they're not our friends. That same hatred will be turned on us. We should not be foolish. And they shall lay you even within, with the ground and your children within you. And they shall not leave in you one stone upon another. The hatred is so thorough because you knew not the time of your visitation. So we can be deceived. We don't know what's going on. And we're supporting the very people who want to destroy us. The very people who hate Christ. And we're supporting them. So, I just wanted to open this up for dialogue, brethren. I'm not saying I'm absolutely right on everything that I've said here. But I'm saying that... And God is backing me up. (laughs) Either that or he's telling me, Adrian, wrap up now. (laughs) I am going to wrap up. But I am saying, brethren, let's talk about this. This movement is gaining momentum. It's getting more and more funding. It's getting more and more organized. And it's going to impact our children. What do we tell our children when they come home with this uh, anger that the Black Lives Matter movement is seething? What's our response? I think we need to have a biblical response. I think we need to talk to each other so that we can think this through and have a uniform response. But let's conclude in Revelation 21. We don't buy utopia from utopia salespeople. Utopia salespeople are snakes in the grass. They're not our friends. And every totalitarian government has been ushered in on the promise of utopia. And when they get in power, all they do is rape and slaughter. So we're not interested. The only person that can truly bring utopia is the only person with a pure heart. And that's Jesus Christ. And and look at what he's bringing, brethren, in Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and verse 1, John writes, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the windshield that we're looking at. You know, we can look through the rearview mirror, and we can see slavery, and we can play the victim. Or we can look further back through the rearview mirror and see who sold us into slavery and then look through the windshield and see that they're coming again. And this time it's going to be worse. 
But then we don't stop there. We keep looking beyond that to see Christ is coming. And don't lose heart. It's going to be very, very difficult. We need to encourage each other and encourage our children to get through the dark times ahead. And to do that, brethren, we're going to need each other. We can't afford to alienate each other. We can't afford to have divided loyalties. Our loyalty is to Christ. Who is my brother and who is my sister? Those who do the will of Christ. But look what we shall inherit. Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is what we see in the windshield. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away with all the utopian salespeople. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is what we look for, brethren. Verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Brethren, this is the utopia I want to hold on to. And who is my brother and my sister? It's everyone who has this hope with me. Let's begin the conversation.